Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your son came into this world and that uh, he was the one who helped us to understand who you are, your heart, and to manifest it in a way that uh, was uh, very clear to, as to who you were and, uh, and who you are. And so we pray that uh, you help us today as uh, we look at this book of John that has uh, led so many people to come to a knowledge of you uh, through your son. I pray that uh, we would understand it better, what John was doing in the book, and uh, that way be able to better understand some of the wonderful things that uh, Jesus is capable of doing uh, because he is God in human flesh. And so uh, help us to understand, and this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, if you would uh, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20, because that's where we're going to end up first uh, in uh, our reading here this evening. So if you're wanting to know that, uh, we've gotten through the three Gospels so far, uh, and uh, we're coming to the fourth one. And this fourth one is unique. Well, all of them are unique, but this one's unique because of multiple different factors that we're going to go through initially, uh, and uh, it makes it stand out from the other three Gospels. Uh, it's different. But uh, you start off and you go, well, who's it written by? It's written by John. Okay, John was the author, uh, second most prolific author of our New Testament, first one being Paul. Uh, John wrote uh, five of our books in the New Testament uh, four of them named after himself, not that he was egotistical, that's just the name that's been given, and then the book of Revelation. And uh, those books are a part of uh, his uh, contribution to the New Testament church. Um, throughout the gospel, John never mentions himself, but he's a part of many of the details that go on, and when he refers to himself, he refers to himself uh, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, I think this comes through the fact because uh, you look at the second line, John and his brother James were the sons of Zebedee. Their mother was Salome, who was the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. So what you have is that James and John were cousins of Christ, if you want to think of it that way, cousins of Jesus. And uh, there seems to be much family familiarity between them, just reading the stories uh, and John's interaction, that it wasn't that James and John suddenly meet Jesus uh, 30 years into his life and this. No, they, they would have known each other long before this. Um, and uh, that there's this family tie, and you even see a closeness between Mary and Salome. These are women that are at the cross, uh, and so there's a closeness, and so there's this, you know, if there was a relative that Jesus was close to, John was probably closer to him than his brothers were, his half-brothers, as far as a family relative. And, and you perhaps have experienced that, that uh, you have relatives that are not necessarily your siblings that you actually might even be closer to. Our daughter, it's kind of like that, but she was an only child. Uh, and uh, for her, but uh, cousins were uh, pretty close to her. And so same way with uh, Jesus, it may have been that uh, though he had brothers and sisters, that it may have been that James and John were ones that were closer. Uh, these brothers were known by the nickname Sons of Thunder, Okay, and you go, why? Uh, were they loud individuals? I don't know. But 
the story that goes along with this is the story where you have um, them coming to a city in Samaria, and when they come to the city of Samaria, uh, the city of Samaria there does not want to accept Jesus. And so what James and John do in playing off of what they knew about Elijah, because Elijah was ministering in this region, they, they asked the Lord, do you want us to call down fire? Okay, lightning from the sky. Do you want us to do that? And um, the Lord's like, no. <laughs> uh, it comes to this that uh, he does not want them to do that, but that's their response. Uh, we, we talk about Peter being rather audacious and going out and he's pulling out his sword to defend Christ and whatever. James and John probably were not too far behind in being kind of that personality that is uh, a driven personality and one that um, was like this. However, by the end of his ministry, John is known as the apostle of love. And you go, well, his life had changed. Yeah, well, you read in the gospel here that this is brought up multiple times about God, but his uh, epistles are stating the fact that God is love. And as a result of God's love to us, it changes us to be individuals who reflect God's love also. And uh, I tend to think that uh, the John, as a result of the cross, is like many of the other apostles, uh, were a changed personality. Peter goes from being that stubborn, uh, harsh individual to being the leader that he's supposed to be uh, after the cross and uh, being spirit-filled. So uh, it is uh, this type of thing that's going on with John, with the familiarity with Christ and his ministry, family relation, this type of thing. This is why he eventually receives responsibility for Mary. It it seems to be that he is the nearest uh, family member that has some faith in Christ, and so Jesus gives him the responsibility for Mary, and uh, you find that uh, Mary, some uh, suggest in history uh, from some of the writings of the early church fathers that she follows John around, ends up in Ephesus where John is at uh, as part of his ministry uh, and is there. So, So the author is John. The theme is Jesus is God. John's uh, gospel actually states his purpose for writing. I mean, he's really, really nice. He, He goes through the whole book, and if you missed it, he at the end goes, okay, if you missed it, this is why I wrote the book. I'm just gonna put it in writing and state it for you if you missed it. So asked if you, for you to turn to John 20. I didn't turn there myself, so let me get there. Uh, John chapter 20, and it makes uh, this statement, and uh, we call this the kind of the end of the book. Chapter 21 is an add-on, because this book has a prologue and an epilogue. For all the stories happen uh, that you need, there's a prologue, and then this is kind of an extra story at the end in chapter 21. But chapter 20... John says uh, this in verse 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, okay, these stories that I gave you, these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by that statement, Son of God, it's not saying he's the offspring of God. He is God because he's the perfect reflection of God. He is God. 
and that believing ye might have life through his name. And so the, the hopeful results, the reader would believe and have eternal life. Uh, there is the, the end note on the epilogue. Uh, I do want you to look at chapter 21, verse 25. Uh, he makes the statement again, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they, they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. He basically says, I selected material, and you know, here's this extra story in chapter 21, and if I was to write everything I could about Jesus, you wouldn't have enough space to store all the material. And you go, okay. So John is obviously stating to people, I was very selective in what I chose here. And uh, you're going to see how selective he is, even in some of the numbers that he uses. Uh, this book is written for the world. Okay, this is a prominent theme of John. You go, uh, I don't know. Uh, okay, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. Uh, you have the statement he's coming into the world, and you say, what does this word mean? Uh, it's the word that we get um, cosmos from. You know, with cosmetics, the idea of you know having tools to arrange your your face and that type of thing. Uh, that type of thing. Uh, that's the word that we get from world. It's the idea of organized uh, system, and in many contexts as you read through John, it's not a good word because it's talking about the world as opposed to God, the activities and the events and the habits of it, but at other times you read it and it's just talking about this world that you live in and people are part of it. Um, But it is a book that is a universal book there's not a whole lot of reference to Jewish customs and the like. There are a few things. Uh, it, it's, it's a book, as you read through it, that you suddenly realize that pretty much anybody from any culture can kind of read this and get some of the concepts that he's talking about. It's a book designed to, to be something that anybody in the world can really grasp onto quickly and understand what's being written. The time that this book was written was about, uh, it was the last of the Gospels that is written, it includes details that other Gospels are missing. Okay? Uh, it indicates who was the one who cut off the servant's ear. And you go, why? Well, because Peter was dead. You know, no, no bringing him up on charges anymore. You know, uh, somebody could go, oh, well, Peter, he, he actually attacked somebody. That, you know, he should have gone to jail for that. Um, it, it, John records it. It goes, Peter who drew his sword and cut off the servant's ear. Uh, Not that Peter was so skilled that he could cut off somebody's ear. He missed the guy's head and cut off the ear. Um, But he does give those type of details, details that uh, in some cases it wouldn't affect the people because they're no longer around. Uh, So he has uh, some of those details. Uh, He writes this probably, uh, John writes this somewhere between 80, 80 and 95 uh, 95 was the start of another set of persecutions that John eventually uh, ends up dying during, um, and most people suggest it was written in this time frame. So it's, it could have been the last book that was written. 
Now, some have suggested it could have been written after Revelation, but I tend to think that it was Revelation is the last book because of what it says at the end that you're not supposed to add or subtract to what is written therein. So I tend to think that it's written before Revelation, Revelation being the last book um, for that. So it's somewhere in that time frame. We don't know exactly, but uh, most people say, yes, it is the last one because John lasted the longest. His brother was the first of the apostles to die. You read that in Acts chapter 12. Uh, He was beheaded and Peter was headed for the same thing. Uh, But James died first and then John, ironically his brother, uh, and including what John tells us in John chapter 21, there's a story about how is John going to die? Peter's like, you know, well, how is he going to die? The Lord doesn't really give an answer. Uh, but uh, Peter, you're going to die, and you're going to die because somebody, you know, how you're going to die is other people are going to drag you to where you're going because uh, you're going to be old uh, and not able to do that, and they're going to take you to your death. So you have that final story. It kind of hints at the fact that John's talking about, hey, there's, the Lord actually said, I was going to live a while, <laughs> um, and uh, I'm still here. It was prophesied in John chapter 21. Now, the material itself, the thing about John, and uh, you have it there, is that it's simplicity. Writers, when they tend to write at times, try and impress you with their complex language and ideas and verbiage, and so sometimes you lose track of what they're talking about because they do that. John, on the other hand, in his writing, uses concepts and words that anybody is familiar with and uses them repeatedly and uh, connects you to different things. And so as you go through this, he uses simple thoughts and words. He repeatedly comes back to these themes uh, to magnify the message that Jesus is God. Uh, He uses certain, or uses certain, yeah, words uh, more often than all three of the gospels combined so a lot of these words that he's using repeatedly you look at the book of john and he uses it more if than matthew mark and luke john or matthew mark and luke use it together he's obviously emphasizing these words the, the one here and we'll get to the end here uh, believe I mean, he's all over the book talking about believe, 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 and uh, he's pounding that message in, uh, and uh, he's talking about it. Uh, the world, to know. A lot of his knowing uh, that he talks about, because John in his other letters is going to be talking about uh, true knowledge of God, but it's a lot of times where Jesus is talking about his knowledge of the Father, I know where I came from. You do not know. Uh, I know the Father. Uh, Life, over and over again. This book is talking about life, and people understand the concept of life, but there's a new aspect of this that it can be eternal. Okay, and so people had this in the back of mind that this is a possibility. John magnifies the fact that this is the case. Uh, People witnessing glory, Love, as we said, a major theme of many of John's work. The Word, which we'll talk about that in a second, why that's important. Uh, Sent, he's many times saying, I've been sent from the Father, which is indicating the fact that he comes from God. And so uh, those type of things. But 
just a lot of things repeated over and over again, and so you can trace these themes out, and a person's going, oh, we're talking about light again, and his work, and his word, and, and so you find this in the, the chapters, a person's reading this, and these are not foreign concepts to them, but it's making, and I would put it this way, God is the most complex being in the universe, we can't even fathom really who he is. And you have a book that's talking about God, and it makes it very simple. I mean, I think that's kind of the, the irony that's in this book, that we're dealing with something that we really, uh, someone we don't have words to describe, but yet he describes them in ways that people can grab onto and go, okay, this is what God's like. And so uh, John is known for its simplicity. This is why uh, many times uh, you'll say to people, uh, if you ever read about Jesus, you know, read one of the Gospels, and you'll tell them, read the book of John because they'll get the themes over and over again. And, then, and the purpose is given to them at the end uh, of why John wrote it. And so uh, it's a simple book for a very complex subject. You have, secondly, that John is talking about divinity, that Jesus is God, and I want us to go back to the beginning of the book in John chapter 1. And a person picking this up and having any sort of Bible knowledge, any sort of Bible knowledge, would start off reading this and hear this, in the beginning, okay, what you would expect to hear next is God, which is what John is going to say, but he kind of hides it in the fact of using this idea of the word. But what John starts with is going, okay, we're going to go back to the beginning of time before time even begins, I mean, John just takes you past uh, Adam and Eve, uh, like you have in the book of Luke, takes you past Abraham and David, uh, like Matthew is emphasizing, and takes you right back to the beginning when everything started and God was already there. And so when you start the book of John, you get this, this hint, this echo of the opening verses of John. However, Jesus is introduced as the Word, now you think about this, how do we communicate with people? We use words. So how is God going to communicate himself to people? Well, for years he's been using the written word. And people aren't getting it. I mean, he, he did this for years uh, with the Old Testament prophets and others, and he's got these uh, passages that are written uh, describing who he is, and people still aren't getting it. So what is he going to do? Well, he's going to bring the living word, one who can communicate God, and you can see him, you can hear him. Uh, it's a living word that is going to be able to communicate what God is like. And this is what John plays off uh, of you get down to verse number 14, and it says this, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
okay? And that word dwelt is the word tabernacled. I mean, the people of Israel had God tabernacle with them. Went in the middle of their uh, society for 40 years, uh, God tabernacled amongst them. Uh, And so you have this, that he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, as the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, just as Moses was able to see the glory of God, and the nation of Israel were able to see a display of God's glory, and day in and day out they could see the Shekinah glory of God in the midst of their camp, John said, well, this is what happened, that Jesus came amongst people, and just like that was uh, the case, they were able to see the glory of God day in and day out. And you begin to see what uh, he is talking about in verse number, what he was discussing. Uh, Look at verse number 16. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace, for the law was given by Moses, the written word given by Moses. However, uh, verse uh, 17, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Okay, Uh, I have the word there, expound. I I almost wrote down the words exegete, but I wanted it so that you could at least read uh, this later and know what that means. But an exegete is one who leads something out. Okay, as a pastor, I'm hopefully an exegete when I preach. You go, what does that mean? I'm leading out what the text says for you to be able to see. And so sometimes they talk about preaching and that, they, they call it exegesis or being an exegete. You're taking what the text says and that word ex uh, out, you're leading this out. And what Jesus is doing is that he is leading out and explaining and expounding this is what God is like. His whole life is that message. Because he is God. And if you want someone to ex- exegete perfectly, you get the person to do it. And here in this case, in the book of John, you have Jesus who comes and dwells amongst men. He tabernacles, so he's taking human flesh and so he can go amongst the people and he's expounding and explaining what God is like by his life, by his words, because he is God. And humanity can see God. No man's seen God any time. Uh, nobody sees God, uh, the Father, without, or in our bodies, because our bodies could not handle that. That's why we have to have a resurrection body in order to go to heaven. But Jesus comes and dwells amongst men to give us an understanding of what God's like, visibly for us to see. And so right from the start, John in this thing called the prologue, the the first 18 verses, which is just kind of John setting up the whole book. It's his birth story, if you want to put it that way, is explaining that Jesus is here to communicate what God's like, and he's doing it perfectly because he is God. And so anybody reading this, and they would have understand there's, there's things in the Greek culture, they already had the concept of word in their culture, the word a guy by the name of Philo and, of, and others had promoted this concept of something of God being like this very imperfectly. John seems to be playing off of this. 
and some of the stuff in Jewish culture was uh, playing off of this. But you have right in the start the prologue expressing this. The second thing that it hints at the fact that this book is about God is that there is this number seven that is prominent throughout the book. Not that he uses the number seven. There's a, a bunch of seven sets of things. And in the culture back then, and especially the Jewish culture, seven was the number of God. You go, why was that? Because God created the world. The seventh day he rested, and there's this day that is set aside that's hallowed for God. And so that number seven, just in their culture, uh, was something that had to do with God. So seven's the number of God. As you go through the book, you find seven sets of different things. For instance, there are only seven signs. And he calls them signs. These miracles aren't just there because you want to be fascinated by the story. They're pointing to something, and they're pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. Okay? Uh, you have the very first miracle, not recorded in any of the other Gospels, this story of this marriage feast right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's like the opening, one of the opening miracles Jesus has in all of the Gospels. And uh, he changes water to wine, something that you hope is not living water, uh, to something that had life and is complex in nature, and it's done in an instant without touching anything, you go, what is this? Uh, This is God. God can create things in an instant and be able to do this. Uh, The nobleman's son, uh, Jesus is able to heal from a distance. You know, he doesn't have to be there and touch the person and say, you know, some sort of incantation and, and this type of thing over. No. He can just go, he's healed. And he's 20, 30 miles away, and the nobleman's son is healed. Very instant where Jesus said this. Um, you have the cripple by the pool, the, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is um, in all of the Gospels. It's one of the unique stories that's in all of them. And, uh, but you go, okay, who's able to create something out of nothing. Well, you have Jesus sitting here with five flat, flat pieces of bread. You know, oftentimes we think, you know, he's got this big loaf and whatever. No, they would have been flat pieces of bread, and he's just tearing this off, and he's giving it and handing it out for his disciples to, to, to use, and he feeds at least 5,000, and that was just the men. Uh, estimates 10,000, 15,000 people he feeds, and there's 12 baskets left over. And in John's story, you actually have people trying to come and take him and make him king right then and there. You go, why? Because if you've got an individual who can take care of your food needs, hey, what else do you need? If you can take care of our daily bread, and it's obvious you can take care of our daily bread, uh, then we'll make you king. And uh, so you have that story. And then the man who's born blind... And then the raising of Lazarus, that the last miracle is the one that you're really concerned about. In fact, Jesus talks to Mary about the fact, uh, do you believe that I am able to raise one from the dead? And she says, well, I believe, though her faith is kind of weak at that point. After he states, I am the resurrection and the life, and he goes and proves the point that he can bring life out of death. And you're going, who can do that? Only God. Because God is the author of life. He is the one who ends life. His time is in our hands. And so he can do whatever he wants with human life. And that final miracle is just kind of the peak. If you don't get the fact that this one is God, 
you, you kind of missed all the miracles. You didn't really quite understand it. But all of them are pointing to something like that. There are seven signs. There are seven I am statements. And even with the I am statements, there's a hint that Jesus is God. Okay, God is the great I am. If Jesus just said, I am, which he does hint it in the book that he is the I am, Jews would immediately go, uh, he's claiming to be Jehovah. Because Jehovah, by the word itself, uh, is the word I am. It's a play on that word. And so Jesus is saying this and then connecting it with seven statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. Understand that the John chapter 10 gives us two of these I am statements. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. You might be able to say that's equal because the door is the shepherd. Okay, when it came to the sheepfold, uh, the, the shepherd would be the one sitting in the doorway, allowing sheep to come in, sheep to go out, people to go in, people to go out. He would sit in the doorway. He would actually be the door. So it's kind of, you know, he says, I am the door early on. Then later on in the discussion, he says, I am the good shepherd. So you're getting the context that, okay, he's actually claiming what we have in Psalm 23, that he is the shepherd. Um, I am the good shepherd, resurrection of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And uh, these sets of seven. Uh, there are a couple other sevens that are a little less prominent. There are seven different individuals that witness to who Jesus is. Okay, They testify to who Jesus is in the, in the book. And uh, you can go through and just kind of see this. And John's intentional about this. I mean, he chooses certain statements of Christ, he chooses a certain number of miracles, and you're sitting there going, it's seven. And so somebody reading this from Jewish culture would go, oh, well, he, even in his arranging of the story and the number of stories he has and the number of statements he has, he's just kind of hinting subtly, this is God. Okay? We're not talking about uh, some just regular person. Jesus on multiple occasions claims to be sent from God, which points to his divine origin. Okay, I'm sent out from the presence of God. I and the Father, you know, communicated in times past, and you have this in John chapter 5, and this really upsets some people, but he's, he's claiming this. I'm, I'm of divine origin. I'm not of human origin. I'm sent from God. I'm out of heaven. Okay, I'm divine in my nature. Uh, he was on several occasions clearly declared that he was God, and the crowds around, crowds around him understood that uh, because on those occasions, they're taking up stones to stone him. You know, we're not taking up stones because of something you did. We're taking up stones for what you said, that you're God. And so the Jews recognized that Jesus was claiming divinity in many of his stories. And there's a lot of other things you can look at and you just kind of say, okay, he's trying to point out the fact that Jesus is God. But I want you to turn back to John chapter 20 again. Okay, we want you to go to the last story before the closing notes of what John wants you to understand. And it's the story of doubting Thomas. I would say he's devoted Thomas, okay? He's the one who wants to die with the Lord. He's willing to die. Go to, in John chapter 11, uh, Jesus, if you go to Judea, you're going to be killed. And Jesus says, well, let's go to Judea. And Thomas says, well, let us go and die with him. 
And he's not talking, let's go die with Lazarus. He's going, let's go with the Lord and die with him. He's devoted. And so when Christ dies on the cross, he's devastated. He's broken by this, and he's not even willing to get together when there's a a meeting call to the apostles. Uh, They get together, and there's 10 of them, and Thomas is nowhere to be found. And it's at that point where the Lord comes, and he shows himself to those uh, uh, apostles that are there. But verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. So, verse 26, after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thine hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And when this happens, verse 28 I mean, this is what John is working up to. This is, this is the climactic statement of the book. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. You go, oh. So John goes, if you didn't get that, I wrote this book for this purpose to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The last person in the book is saying this. The last person in the storyline is telling you this. My Lord and my God. You go, oh, okay. So Thomas is is proving our point that this one, Jesus, is truly God. And he's calling him that. I mean, you, you close the book out. There's not a whole lot of statements of people calling Jesus God in the book, but you get to the end, and here's one clearly saying, you are God. And so you have uh, this statement uh, that's there, and so Thomas uh, really helps close the book out. Now, the other thing that you find in the closing of this book is that the other important thing, once you figure out this one is God, what is John trying to press you on? Sorry, I forgot to put that slide up there. The blank is God, if we haven't filled it in yet. Closing comments of chapter 20 show that John's desire, as well as Christ's desire, is for individuals to believe upon him. Okay? John lays out different ways that Jesus confronts people with the fact that he's God. You have personal conversations. Chapter 3, the whole thing about Nicodemus, a ruler who comes to Jesus by night. And I would argue the fact that it's not so important to when Nicodemus comes. It's indicating what his heart is. Because there's only one other occasion in the book where it talks about it was night, and it's when Judas Iscariot goes out and leaves the Lord, and it says, it was night. And you're going, well, yeah, it's night. Because they celebrated Passover at night. Why do we need to be told it's night? It's because it's John's way of hinting at the fact he's got a heart filled with darkness. And so when Nicodemus comes, you have this story, he comes to Jesus by night, and you go, oh, well, if anybody's saved, it's him. Mm -mm. No, he's not. His heart's dark. 
just like the darkness that he's meeting Christ in. But Jesus talks to him in chapter 3, chapter 4. Jesus is confronting a woman about her greatest need. It's not the water that you're drawing from this well. It's one who can give you life. And not just life for right now, life for eternity. And so you have personal conversations that the Lord uses. There's public debates uh, where Jesus just says something. And there's this back and forth that goes uh, between individuals asking questions, and he's answering them. And there's discussions like this throughout the book of John where Jesus is trying to prove his point. And then he even has private teaching where he takes the disciples and he has this lengthy section in chapters 13 to 17 uh, just before he dies where he's teaching his disciples about certain things about him, that he's going back to his father, that he's going to heaven, that he's going to send uh, another comforter which is just like him that is God, but it's the Holy Spirit that he's going to send. And so he has these private conversations and the private teaching but there's this desire for individuals to believe upon him. And you see this statement, uh, we'll fill in the blank here. Jesus in his ministry time was generally rejected. I mean, the prologue, John chapter 1 verse 10 says this, he was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not, did know him. And then it says this, he came into his own and his own received him not. You go, what does that mean? He comes to the nation of Israel who should know who he is. He comes to his own people. Don't want him. Okay? Uh, It was that he was going to be rejected. However, there were some who believe and become the sons and daughters of God. You have right after that statement, he came to his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, To them gave he power to become the sons of God, to be the sons of God, that they have a right to be a part of the family of God, to be a part of God's house, uh, to go there someday and be with him for eternity. Uh, That's there. They could believe and have life eternal. Uh, John wrote for a generation that was not around during Jesus' day. Okay, he's writing in 80, 95, so you have at least one generation that's passed, if not another generation that's passed. So many of these people that he's writing to weren't even born when Jesus was on earth. So the question was, well, you got to see him. You can have life. Do we have the opportunity to have life? And even in the closing story there in John chapter 20 and verse 29, just after Thomas makes the statement, my Lord and my God, there's this little statement that John adds that the Savior has. And it's this, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Okay, you've seen me and you've believed, but blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. What's he saying? He's making a statement about the fact that there's going to be a generation that comes that never saw Jesus and they're going to be blessed because they believe without seeing. They've merely heard. And so John's writing this book for people that never got to see Jesus and he's saying you can believe and be just as blessed as those people who were there and were able to touch and see and feel uh, who Jesus was. They, They could know him personally that you can believe and have eternal life just like the people who were there. And so that's John's purpose in the book. 
I mean, he's, he's the Son of God. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who died to give you life. He is God in human flesh. And if you believe on him, you'll be just as blessed as those that believed on him in that time. Uh, you can be saved. And so it's a great book to just have that message driven home for people that Jesus is not just merely a famous person or someone that you need to know. No, you need to believe on him because he's God. And so uh, great message, great book um, for people to be, well, really have that message driven home that they need Jesus. That he's not somebody they can ignore. He's God. And you can't ignore God. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the great gift that we can understand who you are. Lord, we thank you that salvation is simple. It's as simple as just simply believing and casting ourselves upon this one who says he's the way, the truth, and the life that he is the good shepherd, that he is the resurrection of life, that we cast ourselves upon a statement like that and hold on to it. So Lord, uh, we thank you for your son being willing to come here. Didn't have to. Be rejected by a large number for the sake of even people like us 2,000 years later that we can be blessed if we just simply believe what we find in the pages and the writing of John. Thank you for salvation that is so simple and so free. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.